0: Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Bakari Akil, and he is the founder of Graves Hall Capital. Did I get that right? You said it right. All right, cool. You looked, you smiled. I was like, oh, no, did I butcher it after all that? I used to joke around all the time. I said, the first six months, I don't care if your name was John Smith's. I butchered everybody's name. It was an (laughs) ongoing theme. I would stutter, mispronounce them, whatever. Let's just start off right off the bat, man. You're a really cool guy. Done a lot of stuff. You travel the world right now. We're going to get into that just, just for fun. To get people mm. to kind of know who you are let's start off with your origin story how did you end up on a show about mergers and acquisitions
1: yeah so my background um so i'm currently as the founder of graveslaw capital i've uh bought several companies i bought a, a Burlap bag manufacturing company called nyp corp earlier this year bought an educational technology company A completed that deal uh, a couple of years ago before, the year before that excuse me i didn't the first deal, the NYP Corp deal with a private equity firm, the deal before that, I did that with a, a family office. Um, I've worked in corporate development, buying companies on behalf of other corporations. And I also teach right, MA um, or ETA, I should say, entrepreneurship through acquisition, teaching the MBA candidates at Cornell's business school how to buy companies. Uh, I've been doing this work for our MA work and, and transaction work since probably around 2015, 2016. Um, that said, my introduction to this space is a lot different than what um, sort of standard, my background. I didn't go to a business school. I didn't um, get an MBA. I actually didn't even finish my undergraduate d- um, degree. I, I went to Morehouse College um, and dropped out because I wasn't able to afford the school. Around 2015, I was sitting around and asking myself, why am I not rich? Like, what what is going on? <laughs> why do not I have more money? I thought by the time I got to 25, I was going to be far more wealthier than I was. And I was struggling at the time. And uh, I started looking into like, what could I do to go from here to uh, to success? And uh, I came across this concept, this leverage bio concept by just reading a lot of personal finance books. And they would talk about what it took to save money and your 401k and all those types of things, um, which I was starting to do and starting to participate in. But while I started asking myself is, think that that's what mark zuckerberg did that's not what the guys who have like enormous amounts of wealth what did they do that's different than uh than that and i knew starting a business made sense but i didn't have like a really good startup idea so what 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 are the options and as i mentioned i came across the concept of a leverage buyout and once i actually like understood and consolidated and understood uh what it meant to actually apply it i was like wow this is The most amazing thing i've ever heard i can go and borrow money from the bank for an existing business that's already up and running i don't have to go learn this business it's already existed i don't have to create it i'm going to find the employees i got to find the customers it's all that stuff is all there and all i got to do is organize the money so i can get this done oh sign me up and so i just started looking and learning and getting deep into this subject and ultimately ended up taking a class. I sat in a class at Columbia Business School. Basically, I learned that they were teaching this um, subject, Harvard and at Stanford, um, and they were just now starting to open up and and share the same content at Columbia. And I wasn't a student at Columbia Business School, but I lived in Harlem, which is the same neighborhood that Columbia Business School went. And so one day when I realized that this class was being taught there, I just went to the business school and sat in the class. And uh, that was how I ended up getting introduced to the space and up connecting and meeting with investors, but it all started with that um that work. And so um that's there's a direct line from that activity all the way to where I am today.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. One of the things you said during there which kind of caught me off guard there is yet you, you didn't finish your bachelor's degree, but yet you're teaching at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. That's an impressive uh, feat, right? There's a not everybody I've been at I have multiple college degrees and I've been an adjunct professor, sometimes they bring me in to teach certain things and stuff, but I've always had to show my credentials, right? I have an MBA, mm-hmm. I have undergrad degrees and stuff like that. If they want me to teach, it's just, you know, an, you know a course or something it's because I meet the, the, all the check boxes. For you mm-hmm. to teach a course at Cambridge, it means that you've got personal merits and personal achievements that they overruled any type of educational checkboxes they needed for you, I think. So that that in itself says something. It really does. Thank you. Uh so,
1: just for point point of clarification, I, I teach at Cornell's Business School. Yeah. By teach, I want to be very clear so that there's no um no confusion. Um I'm not a professor, I'm a visiting lecturer. Yeah. Um, as you just said, my personal merits are what um the students they are hungry for people who um who have personal experience, who have personal experience and can speak to what it's actually like to be in the trenches as opposed to just sort of that pandemic. Understanding around entrepreneurship, which can be it's it's harder to find a solution to these types of problems of how to organize and find capital when you haven't actually done, yourself gone out and done uh, done the work and so that's the reason why uh, Cornell's uh, a- invited me um, for several years now to come and speak to their students and teach uh,
0: this subject that they're very much interested in I just interviewed uh, David Dotson. You know who that is
1: yeah, absolutely that, um, so. I mentioned that I sat in uh, Tim Bovard's class, which he taught at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I what I usually don't mention is that I um, also booked a flight and flew to Stanford, and I sat in Dave Dodson's class as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was uh, committed to learning about this subject, and I would have done the same thing that um, at Harvard Business School. But at the time, um, that class had already had already wrapped, and so, um, but yeah, I, I learned from both Tim and Dave Dodson.
0: It's interesting that you said you're setting. Is that like a auditing in a class, or is that a, like you yeah, know, in a
1: grade? You pay a fee a a grade. I, I wasn't getting a grade. I wasn't. I'm a formal student.
0: Uh, I
1: was infiltrating the schools of higher learning.
0: And I'm just curious. Did you so pay? This. Let's get clear here. Did you pay a fee in like uh, audit the class? Or you just showed up to where the class was and went and sat I in the back. It. Man, I so
1: like, I I. I <laughs>
0: I, I absolutely love that. Perfect. Right. I the,
1: I the information of where the course was being taught was publicly accessible on on the on the school's websites, and so yeah. once I once I figured out who was teaching the course, the times and dates that that, that course was available, I just went to the school and sat in the class. In fact, um, that was how I ended up becoming my. That was the first time I was uh, invited to be a lecturer, and, uh, and of course, the professor there was so impressed by my willingness to go learn this subject and to go and sit in a class to um, specifically um, that uh, in later years, he would invite me back to speak to the class about. The fact that I did that and what it takes beyond just doing that and the willingness to go this hard to find companies and to negotiate and complete transactions, it requires a sense of boldness A sense of sort of coming, uh, getting over the imposter syndrome that, you know, we in our early 20s were experiencing um, and to be willing to, you know, this is, this is very difficult putting together multi-million dollars to buy a business that's been in somebody's families for some kind of generations. You know, for instance, the company I bought NYP Corp truly has been in that family for generations. It was founded in 1946. It's almost, it's almost a hundred years old at this point. And so, um, to be able to speak to a business owner and explain the value proposition, I mean, it requires that that same thing, that, that same place that I pulled in our know, willingness to want to learn the
0: subject from. I, mean, I was willing to go to that extent to learn this the, the topic. It takes that to. to I think the, the word I want to use is moxie. <laughs> <laughs> I think moxie, like it's, it just says something that you you know, your passion to learn it overrode any logic that you would have had to discuss to talk you out of doing what you did right okay. it, it takes something it really does it's one thing to pay for some money and go sit in a class you know try to figure it out it's another thing to go look i'm gonna go figure this out whether i've got the money to do it or not right sure. and uh at, at this career I, i've done a lot of different things in my life bought in real estate owned a real estate uh bought, had software companies worked in software companies mergers and acquisitions is so dynamic and so changing and so every deal is different mm-hmm. that if you don't have fortitude, if you don't have that moxie that you just inherently, by nature, seem to have, you're not going to get very many deals done, right? That's right. These things take, you know, six, eight, nine months on a minimum, 12 to 18 months on, not unheard of, uh, sometimes longer. Some of these deals, you know, these mergers and acquisitions, the big guys, they, they've, done, they've taken years to do, get them done. I love what you're doing, man. Yeah. So uh, anyway, let's go back to you. So. You you audited the or not audited you said in these classes I I, I won't even use the word audit because there's a formal process for that you mm-hmm. went and got the knowledge you needed and then what did it look like to start applying that knowledge to? how did you get to talking to you just kind of stepped right over the SBA game and went sounds like you just went right to like who's got the big money to do the big deals but uh what yeah, was yeah I mean I mean.
1: And I don't want to give the impression that I came into this with the idea that I was going to just do big, big deals. Um, what I, I came into this to just do exactly what David Dotson and Tim Bovar taught. Yeah. I wanted to do the exact small business, use the SBA, raise a search fund. I thought that was going to be my process. And uh, what I experienced when I tried to do that was rejection from the search fund community and backing my search because I didn't have a lot of the qualifications. I had hustled a lot of the the knowledge, but I hadn't gone and gotten a lot of the things that they thought were the prerequisites to be able to do this thing correctly. I was a little surprised by that because the the search fund community is is predicated on hustle and being willing to do things that are way outside of what's considered the norm. And so when I was receiving the the pushback for going after the the size deals, I was going after like I put up. Um, and organized transactions that were five million dollars and seven million dollars i'm using the sba program corralling investors in that in that route and experience failure and you know consistently as i was navigating that and so when i ultimately came across one of the larger businesses that i um, worked on the or the first large deal that i worked on that closed the educational technology company um, i reached out again to that community and was rejected but was was accepted by the independent sponsor community, the people who were in that space and who had been doing these types of deals for a long time and recognized that the structure and the deal that I had put together was exactly the type of deal that they wanted to do. And so um, ended up linking up with a with the family office that had feet, feet both in the independent sponsor world and in the search fund world. And so had interacted with me and met me at, um, at conferences that were related to the ETA world. And we organized... Um, the financing for that deal and it ultimately closed. Shortly after that, um, I was in the middle of working on the the NYP transaction and pulled and pulled in a private equity firm that also had a tie to the independent sponsor community and was interested in doing these types of deals. Um, and so that's ultimately why I was able to do larger transactions. It was actually the rejection that I got from the search fund community and, or the search one investors
0: at that time. I love it. Tell you no, know, and you're like, ah, oh, show me." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you. What do you mean? I can't do that. Watch this. Um, right. right. I, I like that. It's that moxie, man. It's the entrepreneurial, the true heart of the entrepreneurial spirit. Right, so right. You're gonna fi- I'm going to figure this out with or without you. I'd love you to join the ride, and uh, if you don't, <laughs> then I'm I'm going to go to the next bus or the next you know limo or whatever will will, will pick me up, and we're going to do this thing. I I appreciate that. It's a that's a a unique trait, and not very many people have it. I'm, I'm raising two kids right now. I have a daughter at seven and a uh, and a son that's 12, and my daughter mm-hmm. is this fireball of a red-haired, blue-eyed, self-determined, you know, person. And I'm trying to play this balance of she's got that fire, that spirit to t- determine what she wants to do, and nobody's changing her mind. So I don't want to just like as a parent, part of you wants to crack that so they just mind, right? Mm-hmm. But the other part of you says, I put I I spent my adult life trying to put adults back together and give them back that fire. Right. i'm not allowing anything to take that from her hmm. but uh like there's part of me that's like if you break that spirit young yeah. it's still hard to give it back to when they really need it in life right that when they yeah. when they need it to be determined and nobody can tell them no and they need to stick with something that's just a trait that i think a lot of kids have that people kind of train them away from or what you call it, break that It reminds me, I grew up on a farm, like, you know, uh, like break the horse, like the horse is a little Mm -hmm. bit spirited, you break it so it's easy to ride. People break children all the time, make them easy to to listen to and mind. So long as she's not hurting herself or doing anything that was really bad, I'm going to let her, let her stick to her guns.
1: Yeah. There's an interview that, uh, that sort of echoes the same Mm -hmm. sentiment
0: that you're sharing with
1: the, uh, the father of Serena and Venus, uh, and Venus Williams. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the stories around his life, uh, th- just like big last year, Will Smith did a uh, release a biopic detailing his life, but there's a, a fascinating moment when an interviewer is talking to one of the Williams sisters and asks, uh, uh, asks them, um, do they think they're going to win or, and they're like, absolutely we're no, there's no question whether or not we're going to win. And they, they respond with such confidence. and. Uh, the interviewer says why do you have this confidence like where do you get this confidence from like why do you believe like in the face of all this that you would have that confidence and their father jumps in in the middle of the interview and he says, do you hear what she just said <laughs> he said just, she's gonna do this right why would you why would you question that why, why would you quite put like thoughts of doubt in this young woman's mind like no. except the fact that she's that confident that she's going to win and leave it at that. There's so many things around that are trying to like push that feeling down in people and children and women. Um, let that feeling drive because that's where you get the success from. And so like, yeah, I can understand where you're
0: coming Let's go to these two acquisitions. Because sure. you didn't you didn't go to the SBA or the small business administration to get a five million dollar you know, You bought one of the largest, was it burlap? I, I grew up on a farm. The only thing I think that, that still uses burlap is like feed sacks, right? That's so exactly I do right. Yeah, that's I, uh... exactly right.
1: So we we sell farm, uh, we sell burlap bags to farms, um, to uh, food um, producers. We sell them as sandbags mm-hmm. um, for particularly for emergency response when there's like floods and stuff like that. So yeah, there are a lot of surprising and uh, and you know there's a there's a fashion thing that's starting to come out with burlap where people are using bags for personal shopping and uh, those types of things. So there are a lot of uses for, for the bag. The goal, the goal with burlap is, or what bur- burlap represents is a natural fiber that can replace plastic when, when necessary. And so it's a good alternative, both in the growing process and in the consumer product.
0: There's some interesting stories back in the great depression. That when the burlap companies figured out that people were having to make clothes out of them, they started making bags that were more decorative and had patterns on them and uh it's interesting story if you ever dig it up and read up Mm -hmm. on uh, like they would make burlap bags for like flour and other stuff and Mm -hmm. then the the, you know the families were making dresses for their daughters and stuff out of them so they started making them more decorative and making them nicer so Mm -hmm. that you know it didn't cost them much more right Mm -hmm. but it turned into something better on the other end for the for the customers don't be was,
1: surprised uh, based on this uh, comment that you're sharing is, uh in two or three years, you don't hear that there's right. a fashion portion of our business that exists. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about this story. So it's, uh, it's yeah, Google,
0: Google it. around it was, it's, it's pretty amazing. It was done back then. It's just one of those, you know, the world, ha- there, there are good people in the world, no matter how bad you, you read how some of the industry titans really were right mm-hmm. They're they're still good in the world. Yeah. Even, yeah. even in the worst of times. So that company has been around for a long time. Uh, I can't imagine there's a lot of innovation in what needs to change as far as a lot of companies you can buy and go, well, they need a modern website and they need a modern Mm -hmm. this and they need a, you know, I don't know what you could change. Uh, How do you do something different or make improvements? You just move out of the way and let it run. So
1: there are a lot of things that we're doing at NYP Corp that, uh, um, that are updating On the processes and the infrastructure of the business um, for modern times uh, to include like rebuilding the website. um, We're creating some just uh, there's a there's there's things I'm I'm trying to be sensitive to like uh, to our strategy that we haven't yet (laughs) shared to the the public, but there are a lot of things that we're we're getting ready to announce that that I think are going to be very unique and different from the different growers in our, in our space who, uh, import burlap and, and so on. So I'm excited to, to see where
0: we, where we take this. I'm excited too, because you pick something that we're kind of moving back towards, right? We're trying to move mm-hmm. away from plastic, trying to move mm-hmm. back to something natural, organic, um, yeah. sustainable, everything I, I just mentioned there burlap is a direct image of that. Right. Cool. So you still, uh, did you have an exit from the previous one or you still have that on your family office, the uh, the educational software company? The family
1: office deal I structured in uh, in a way where the majority of the, fine, uh, the the majority of the value for the business, came to me very much early, and so for the most part, I'm out of that transaction. Uh, and so it was good. It, it created the, the 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 largest windfall that I experienced in my in my career to date. Was also supporting me and, and made it possible for me to complete the the NYP transaction, and so um, I was very happy with how that transaction played out. Did you um, and a year ago?
0: Did you play more of a deal finder role for them? Like you found out what they were looking for, you negotiated a deal, put it together, and they kind of bought you out of the position too, or do you still own? Sort- that? Don't share anything yourself in trouble for, right? I know we yeah, have exactly. NDA, I'm trying to be, Yeah, I'm trying <laughs> to be
1: sensitive to the fact that to to, to that. So what I'd say is. um, What ultimately happened with me and that transaction is, um, and one of the reasons I still define myself as a person who's in the search fund world is that my goal since I started this process was to find one company to buy and run full-time as CEO. And I still um, have that ambition. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I'm not the CEO of uh, NYP Corp and I didn't become the CEO of the educational technology company, I still would like in the future to ultimately end up sitting in that role. And so when it became clear that I wasn't going to sit in that role for, for the educational technology company, I restructured the deal with me and the investors I put together. Um, and so that's ultimately why it ended up playing out where I didn't end up being a CEO, but the transaction closed, And so um, that's a way of me describing what happened without being as NDA breaking as
0: I could. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. There's certain things we can't talk about and stuff on these mm-hmm. deals. So that was a decent windfall. Do you mind? I uh, know I'm not, not going to ask for a direct number, but was it like you know, in the six figure range, or was it better than that? Or oh, that I mean, it set you up way. Yeah, it was.
1: It was well over six figures, but it was. It was. Um, yeah, it. It changed everything for me.
0: I Imagine that's a that's a hell of a windfall, especially for somebody who, uh, you know, may or may not have had the, you had the fortitude to go get any education you want. But part of me says there might have been some financial concerns, too, as to yeah, why were, you just didn't go pay an audit for a class yeah. or something. It was like, I'm going to, you know.
1: There were definitely the financial concerns, but what it really did was it created the working capital for me to go and do bigger and more successful transactions, which is NYP Corp is just the beginning of what mm-hmm. I think is going to be the future of this, uh, this this farm Gravesall Capital. And so that's how I see it. It wasn't just for like covering bills or something like that. This right. is really the capital that I'm using to accelerate the business.
0: Now um, I'm going to take a step back here because I'm really curious. You went out to, now, did you go to the broker route or did, how did you sell, like, how did you source? We're going to walk through the one, of, one or both of the deals real quick, not yeah. at a high level. How did you find the deal? Like what was your sourcing mechanism? Were there a brokerage listed or that? And we'll go from there. Yeah. Deal sourcing
1: is a big part of my approach. Like I, I, I find my, my deal sourcing to be really the critical piece like what what else should i be spending most of my time on other than making sure that the pipeline is as full as possible and i have basically three approaches to to deal sourcing the first is you know the broker approach and so from the jump when i started back in 2015 when i was taking the class and all that the other thing i was doing was i was pulling lists of business brokers from the net. And take them to my own private uh, Excel sheet where I would have access to that, to that data. So first name, last name, email address, phone numbers, the whole nine. Um, and I would go on, I would go on Google and type in business broker New York, business broker Connecticut, and all the people who would show up, I would just add them to my list. Um, ultimately, once I started having a little bit more uh, free capital I would go to like the the association websites, the ACG, the area, at the time, in 20, thinking back to 2015, it's not like that t- today, but at the time, the membership lists for a lot of these um, associations were publicly accessible. They just put your their names, the email address and everything right there. And so I would hire people using Fiverr to, to download those, uh, to basically go on a website and do data entry. So they would just type in first name, last name, email address, phone number, and just add, add a list. So from my meager start, where I would have maybe like a hundred or 200 names on my list from just people I was able to source from the, from the net. Once I added an IBBA and all the other associations, um, the AMAA uh, Association for Mergers and Acquisitions and once I added all of those people into my list, now I am sitting on like a list of like thousand, 2000 people who are on my list. And then I added in the investment bankers who did deals directly with financial sponsors, private equity firms, et cetera. And so at some point, I mean, I, to this day, I was sitting on a list of like 4,000 advisors who were doing jail transactions. And so on a almost a quarterly basis, I would reach out to every single one of them with my criteria, let them know that I'm interested in doing a, doing a deal or I want to do, or do more. And so ultimately would come around, come across deals from that. Um, uh, one of the first deals that I was working on that i got very close to closing, but ultimately didn't, I can reach out to the, uh, one of the uh, brokers who was our investment bankers who was at Wells Fargo. Now Wells Fargo, gigantic firm investment bank. What would they have available to me at the size that I was looking for? Funny enough, he had just had this experience where he was talking to somebody he knew who was looking to sell their company and said, listen, I, my bank is too big for this transaction. You guys are doing, you know, I'm going to sell for about $10 million. We usually do like a hundred to $200 million, but I had emailed him just at that same day. And he was like, I actually know some guy who just reached out to me. And it looks like based on your website and everything that you're looking for a business of about this size, would you like me to connect you to? Yeah. And that was the first deal that I was actually able to pull together the financing. I got the commitment from the bank the whole night. Um, and, and got very close to closing that transaction before it ultimately failed, but, and um, that was how I started building it out. Just reaching out to business brokers, and investment bankers. So, as I said, I had three, um, sources. The second source was I would reach out, um, going online and finding lists of, of, of business owners, um, and just reach out to them directly and again, on a quarterly basis, I'm reaching out to business owners. And so how I came across my first transaction was I. I um, was able to find a list of Connecticut business owners, and the education technology company happened to be on that on that list. And so I reached out to on that list, and that's uh, the CEO followed up with me, and we ultimately met in person. He got a sense for my authenticity, uh, and got a sense that he could actually trust me to uh, move this transaction forward, and so we executed a letter of intent, and then I used that letter of intent for me to outreach to the family offices which ultimately did the transaction with. And then lastly, my I um, have uh, a weekly event that I hosted up until very recently in New York where I would bring entrepreneurs and investors together and we would talk about deals that were available to invest in in New York. And in this forum, we had people would bring startup deals, real estate deals and private equity deals. And I would invite people very wide and broad, you know, 40, 50, 80 people at a time. And we would talk about deals. And in that space, I would let people know that I was looking to buy a company. And from that, people would tap me on my shoulder. Hey, my dad is selling a construction business. I said, I don't know if that's something that's be interesting to you. Let me know the connection if you want. Oh, you know, I know this guy is selling another business. I work yes. as a broker. I'll introduce you to them. Wow, I'm sure you saw. And so that was, you know, sort of like the the social approach. Then the last email approach to both business owners and to brokers. And then hopping on the phone, calling
0: people directly, particularly when I saw a business that looked like it was interesting. So that was my approach. And and it remains my approach today. services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step visit reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order reconciled making bookkeeping a breeze that's reconciled.com that's impressive he, uh it's like you didn't count on one thing you didn't do just direct mail and send out ten thousand letters and hope that people mm-hmm. responded you, you did a really thorough marketing campaign um and uh, that's my background <laughs> I have a master's yeah. degree. My MBA is in marketing and I've been trained in a couple different, different marketing systems since my MBA. Funny thing, I get out of the college with my MBA and realize that all the stuff they taught me in my master's degree really don't work out in the field unless I'm working for Coca-Cola and trying to create a brand. So right. went out and got trained by Jay Conrad and Levinson's crew to be a girl marketing coach and understand low cost, high impact marketing strategies. And then realized I need to better writing skills. And when got trained by Dan Kennedy and those guys, on how to write copy for myself and those Mm -hmm. two things have made a big difference in my world but um you've put together a pretty dynamic approach like even for me when i'm in a search i don't do all three right i I should Mm -hmm. i get busy with this pod i get busy doing other stuff i have some some stuff going out but like i don't send any letters at this moment that are not Mm -hmm. digital um Mm -hmm. and and i'm a direct mail guy i mean i made Mm -hmm. most of my money in real estate sending out letters let's talk about what did you learn in those ETA programs, sitting in those classes that enabled you to structure a deal at the LOI yeah. stage at some point that was so appealing that you would get the big guys, the family offices? I mean, because you had to know what they're looking for and how they structured deals in order to put something in front of them. I used to say in real estate, hey, if, you, if your deal's good enough, the money's going to come, right? right? If you're not getting money for real estate deals, you're not negotiating great deals. You figured that out, you know, somewhere, I almost, almost said early in the game, but I don't know your pain, right? I don't know how many times you <laughs> fell before you figured it out. Uh, but you figured it out. And now you've got a system down where, like, if, if, if you don't have the, the funds or the ability to stroke that check, you know how you need to structure it, that deal so that somebody that does have that ability can yeah. pull that together. So yeah. what is yeah, that?
1: I mean, a shout out to David Dotson. I've actually never said, this publicly before, but one of the things that, uh, I experienced when I reached out to him very early and looking to raise money for a company, is he gave me a, a piece of advice that I, that I stuck to, which is to not pursue a transaction that's under a million dollars in EBITDA. Uh, cause it just doesn't, there's just not enough cash there mm-hmm. on a EBITDA size to attract investors. And, uh, at the time, I, had, I was reaching out to him about a business that had like around four, $400,000 and even though right. he was like, it's just too small. We need to go after something larger. And I thought at the time,
0: $400,000 sounded like
1: a <laughs> like ridiculous amount of money. And so-
0: I'd take you know, another 400K right now. I nice. mean- Exactly. <laughs> right.
1: And so for him to say, listen, it's just too small. It's funny when I, when I talk to people in the real world and I say, i um, you know, a company has a million dollars. They're like, oh my God, that's massive. And then I talk to people in our world and we say a company has a million dollars. And we're like, oh, okay, that's a small business. Yeah. It's, such a, it's such a fascinating disconnect between the way we see the world and the M&A professionals and most people as they navigate the world. Um, but uh, that million dollar cutoff made it possible for me to eliminate a lot of businesses that would have made it through the cut. That shouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been able to go to people like Dotson and others and have an intelligent conversation about a company that I'd be interested in buying. And so that was the first piece of advice. When it came to structuring, structuring for me started very simple, which was the SBA has certain guidelines that will make it possible for them to commit to doing a transact. And let me make sure I don't violate those guidelines as, and if I can pres- Structure the deal against those guidelines, more likely than not, I'll be able to get the SBA. But once I started jumping over the SBA guidelines and to kind of these transactions, the same criteria that the SBA was using were still successful. There were still good transactions to do. As long as I followed that structure, it just would be one or two additional things that the seller would want or that I could provide that the SBA at that time would not be willing to uh, accept. Although you know, excluding the fact that the size of the, the transactions would just be too large for the SBA to absorb. But things like at the time, the SBA was not willing to uh, let you do um, equity rollover for, for a four-seller. Right? Yes. And so if I was going to do a transaction and included that um, that clause, that forced me to have to go outside of the SBA. And there are other clauses like that, that you have to be aware of when you're navigating the the SBA. You can't have the seller stick around in a management role in a transaction for some period of time. And so these are things that the SBA would not allow. And so when I, when, if I was working on a transaction where the seller wants to stick around as CEO, that means I'm not going to be able to go after the SBA as a, as a capital source. And so um, by getting as close to and understanding the SBA guidelines, it gave me a rubric. And then using that rubric is ignoring certain things that may not be appealing for the SBA allowed me to just structure my deal against that and use that to, uh, to attract the capital that I needed
0: on the equity side. That's amazing. That's really cool. Let's go back to the deals real quick because I have a, a question I'm sure other people are thinking. The first deal you did, how much, if any, of your money did you put in to to get the deal done? Did you, were you working on the side and you funneled in a big down payment into this thing or was it all money raised by private investors and funds and family offices?
1: So far, um, I have not had to myself put in any capital into any of the transactions that I've done. So in the structure of my transactions where, and and this is something that I learned was um, far more common. And so practically... Or I see myself as a part of the ETA world, the entrepreneurs the acquisitions, the search fund people. That's the world that i see myself in. But from a practical standpoint, I actually operate as an independent sponsor. And the rules of the game for independent sponsors are different than for search fund uh, entrepreneurs. Search fund guys, generally speaking, have to put up some capital for the transaction. And if they don't put up some some capital for the transaction, it's coming out of them in other ways, meaning they have raised money using the search fund, and so they have to pay back all the money that they um, raised for the search fund plus premium for taking that capital on a risk basis. Um, and so they, so if they raise four hundred thousand dollars, they may have to return as much as six hundred thousand dollars once the transaction um, once the transaction has an exit um, to pay back the investors for giving them the four hundred dollars four hundred thousand dollars upfront so that they can finance their search, right? In the independent the world, there are multiple forms of compensation, but one of them includes. A closing fee, and that closing fee can sometimes pay back a lot of the diligence costs that the that the uh, sponsor put up to um, complete the transaction, or sometimes it can just be uh, a cash that paid to the sponsor to essentially say thank you for putting the transaction together and for it to look the way that it does and paying them for the work of putting that, putting that deal together. And so that's just one form of compensation that is not accessible to search fund and, and ETA people. And so I put together my transaction and talking to my friends and they ask me about what I do with this. And they say, well, how much money do you have to put up? And I say, I actually don't put up a lot of money. I actually get paid when I buy a company, which is unusual for people who are in the ETA world to hear. It's a a different way of thinking about it, where in in the ETA world, often than not, not only are you doing all the hard work or structuring the deal, but your, your once the deal closes, it's just your money and. Uh, and now you have a business, but you haven't gotten actually a windfall of cash that comes alongside um the business that you own that you want to operate
0: so what about the other aspects, right? Like uh happen to have a perfect credit score and happen to have like like educational background uh mm-hmm. the s b a says you have to kind of have either educational background or industry- industrial background. You seem to have bypassed those two in the way you've set it up, right? Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: this, this goes to, you know, using capital sources that are more amenable to to different pieces. So mm-hmm. with, uh, with the SBA, yes, there is that educational component that can sometimes play a role, but as I mentioned, the earlier transaction, the one that failed mm-hmm. didn't fail because the, the lenders didn't want to back me. The lenders did back me knowing all of the educational stuff and et, et cetera. So the education thing can be over the industry and industry expertise concern can sometimes be resolved by key managers staying in place and committing that they'll stick around in the business for as long as the loan is inside the company. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I solved that whenever I, I would deal with the SBA. Mm-hmm. But once once you leave the constraints of the SBA, it's really the, sh- the deal structure that you put together that defines how things are going to look.
0: Well, I'm really impressed here. Probably out of 190 something interviews, nobody I've interviewed have- at least admitted to me doing what you've done, right? You have carved off a niche inside of this that's above the SBA loan, kind of in the ETA world, but you presented yourself as an independent sponsor. You're doing what a lot of people say is impossible, which is a lot of people are saying there's no such thing as these zero down deals. Quit pitching that, quit selling that. You're doing them, right? You've got low down, zero down. Uh, you got, I'm sure you have expenses. I have expenses, uh, research and, and support and help and that type of stuff. Assistance and stuff, and but I don't want
1: to. I don't want to give the impression on to anyone listening that that you should come into the search fund space or come into really any investing space, attempting to pull off zero cost transactions, where you know you don't put up anything and uh, and you're you get everything. The first thing on my side is there's a lot of time, a lot of time, and a lot of grind and a lot of waiting and a lot of patience um, that goes into doing this. And so if you're like, oh, I'm gonna buy a company and it's not gonna cost any money and Bakari did it. So therefore I can do it. And, but I'm gonna try to get it done at three months. I'm gonna be the first, person. the NYP transaction started, I started working on that deal in, uh, in the spring of 2021, it did not close until the spring of 2023 or a winter of 2023 or the, the January, February. Um, that's almost two years of working on that transaction. So there's opportunity costs, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that, that you're, uh, bypassing while you're waiting two years to complete a transaction. And so there's, there's no free lunch. There's no, uh, I'm getting it for free. It's going to cost something. Um, and so be willing to go through that toughness and that grind. Um, uh, and not expect to be able to get some great business for no money. Uh, I don't have to do it. I, I would echo the people who say it's impossible. It's also impossible, but like, there are times rare moments in the fissure of the world where like something can happen, but it's usually when you're dedicating an enormous amount of time and have committed to de- dedicating more time in the future. <laughs>
0: And I actually, I've written full articles. Like, look, there's some dangers and like, for a lot of people who want to own a hundred percent of a company and they're trying to do it, no yeah. money down. I was like, you gotta understand that you got to switch your whole shift, shift your whole yeah. search. You have to hunt down something that has insane profit margins, because mm-hmm. if you're going to do a hundred percent financing, whether it's from the seller financing and or multiple sources, now you're paying interest over time. You've ridden a company that's never had debt with debt and. Mm-hmm. Like all businesses have cycles, like right? you got to make sure that you can cover your debt you know your debt coverage or you can cover your expenses via cash flow not now, not this moment when everything seems to be going good and he's selling the company because it's on the incline, but what happens when it goes through a down cycle when's the last down cycle what caused it and can you still right. support your debt structure you know throughout the next down cycle and people don't get that I've written all articles like, look you know I think that there's a there's a finesse or sexiness of zero down deals, but understand mm-hmm. if you hundred percent finance something like, you know, you want zero down, you know, own a business for two years and then have to lay off 50 people and run 50 right. families lives because you didn't understand that, that it had cycles and it can't support the debt through the, through the right. down cycle. A lot of people don't get that. What yeah. you're doing is a little different because it isn't a zero down deal. It's the, the, the investment banks, the family offices, the private equity funds, they're funding the transaction. That's right. you, you've structured something they want and you're getting paid at close. And I imagine you're retaining some form of equity right. position in the company so that you get distributions over time and get, right. a, get a second check later on if it sells again. That's right. And incentive to try to grow the
1: business um, mm-hmm. during the time that we own the business so I can get access to that additional equity piece.
0: I'd be interested in... Uh, Hypothetical, what's the range that you could continue to own? Is it, you know, five, 10% or is it more or on so, the equity positions of these things? Cause yeah. they're funding the whole deal. Is that okay so to talk about?
1: Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, and then the search point world is very similar, which yeah. is that you get some portion of your equity upfront when a deal closes, you get another portion of your equity based on a time scale. So, you know, one year, three year, fifth year, um, sort of, uh, additional um, buy-ins. And then, lastly, there's a performance aspect that's um, associated with your equity, and that's really where the kicker is. And uh, if you do, if the business returns X amount of capital both to the investors and or uh, well, to the investors, and also pays off the debt um, over that um, over whatever those hurdles are, that those hurdles trigger certain portions of your equity promote. And so that's uh, a very similar structure to most independent sponsors, and I'm not too different from that as well. Awesome. That's cool. That's, yeah.
0: that's great. So, where's somebody other than trying to now? Now the word's out, you know, David and those guys are going to be watching their classrooms a little closer <laughs> so that we all don't go crashing their courses. Probably can't pull that off as easily today as we maybe could. Maybe one of us could, but not, you know, mm-hmm. not, not, don't everybody go out to do that because they'll, <laughs> they'll put a security guard at the door. Other than that, where's a great place for somebody to figure out because what you're doing, like the game that you're in, um, I don't know that there's a like. I've taken some of the courses from different people. I don't know of anybody that's doing what you're doing, um, mm-hmm. which is good.
1: Yes, I mean, so there's an entire world of independent sponsors who structure deals that look very similar to my deals, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them have been in the game. Like I know one of the people who actually coined the phrase independent sponsor. Mm-hmm. So there are people who have been in this game for far mm-hmm. longer. I don't think there's a book. I don't think there is a, um, yeah, I don't think there's a book. I don't think there's a, uh, existing piece of, um, written material about specifically the independent sponsor game. Then the search fund world though, is as close to the knowledge that you would need to structure these types of deals. And so anything that's connected to the search fund world and entrepreneurship acquisition, buy, then build. The HBR Guide to Buying a Company, there's a bunch of other books like that. Um, Those will all be acceptable uh, midpoints between what they do and what I do. There's a ton of YouTube resources, videos, and all that, um, that exists. And then there are books about people who have done this process. And the one that I like the most is the story of, or the autobiography of Reginald Lewis. I don't know if you've heard of that name, but Reginald I've seen
0: Lewis, a video but, you did, uh, you were in some big house. You're pointing at a picture of him. Yes. That's yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's actually the Harvard club I was inside of. And when you walk into the Harvard club, as soon as you walk in there's a gigantic big picture of Reginald Lewis, he was one of the largest, um, single donors to, um, Harvard, um, Harvard law school, um, which is where he, where he attended. So he never had a business degree either. That said, um, What's exceptional about him is that um, in the 80s, he bought a $30 million company with none of his own money or $22 million, excuse me, $22 million company with none of his own money, which he sold around three years later for $90 million. And then shortly after that, he bought, I think it was actually the same year, he bought a $985 million company and became the first Black person to own a billion-dollar corporation. And then he wrote a book about it called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? And so it's one of my favorite books where he just details his independent sponsor um, journey. As I mentioned, the coin, the, the phrase has been coined independent sponsor very recently. Um, and so he was doing these types of transactions in the 80s. And so he um, talks about how he structures the deals, how he sourced the capital, how he found the businesses. And he went through an enormous amount of time where he wasn't doing transactions, meaning he was pursuing deals and transactions would fall apart, pursue a deal, transactions would fall apart. And so, you know, knowing his story, really gave me a lot of inspiration or a lot of people who look like me, the inspiration to try to pull off this thing that we became, became aware that it was possible to uh, inspirational.
0: So it's interesting as uh, I'll read that book because it sounds very fascinating. And I always joking around and tell everybody I'm the whitest guy in my family. Uh, <laughs> I'm our family. I've got a, my wallet is around here. I'm a card carrying a native American, but I, I look like my mom. So if I show up to family, people are looking like, "Who brought the white guy?" Because everybody else was Indian, you know, Indian, mm-hmm. uh, Native American. I'm always rooting for the underdog. I love when a woman's in this space. I love that you're in the space doing what you're doing because it Thank is you. predominantly dominated by old rich white guys. And uh, while I while I look the part, my heart and soul is for all the underdogs out there. So uh, kudos to you for what you've done. Um, I, I love who you are and what you're up to. I look forward to reading a book about what you've done in the future because I, I see you on that path. Uh, yeah, thank you for your time.
1: You're, you're, you're not far off. I'm, in, <laughs> 2000, in 2008, a uh, journalist wrote an article about me and the struggles that I was dealing with in my life. Um, at the time, my family—I grew up on donated food, and uh, I was struggling to pay for college. Second a third, um, and uh, and she published this article in the New York Times talking about um, that part of my story. Um, she and I have just recently reconnected. And we're um, talking through what a, a memoir might look like and, and pitching it to some journalists, I met mean, journalists, uh, uh, to, to, uh, the publishers, excuse me, who, uh, who published these types of stories. And so, or, yeah,
0: they, it may be much sooner than even I
1: expected on the, the outcome for a book.
0: I do appreciate you here. Uh, let's, uh, before, before we go. Uh, is there anything that myself and that, or my clients or customers or listeners out there in this space, anybody that happens to be listening to the show, is there anything that we can do for you? Is there a, yeah, something um, you're looking for or something we can help you with?
1: Let's see. Uh, stay in touch with me. My email address, I'm sure, is in the notes. I'm yeah. perfectly willing to talk and connect with anybody. I'm there. On my website, Capital or com which is where you can find some background on me. LinkedIn, I'm connected there. And so if you wanna stay in touch, I'm traveling around the world right now. So I'm, I, I was in Cape Town two months ago. I was in Athens last month. I'm in Spain right now. Tomorrow I'm flying out to go to Turkey and I'll be there for the month. Um, I'm traveling with this program, a 12 month program called Remote Year for people who travel and, and work remote. And so I'm detailing a lot of my experiences with on this, on this platform I've created called Nomad Noir, just highlighting my experience of being a digital nomad traveling. And so if you want to see what it's like to live outside the world and also work, you, know, you can follow me there as well. And so that are experiences and places you can connect with me. I would love to stand up.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you here today. This has been a, one of the funner shows I've done in a while. I love, Thank you. I love anybody who's got moxie to do what you're done, done and truly designing a life you want to live and going out there and living it man there's something to be said for that so we'll call that a show and thank you thank you very much hang out for just a minute i want to announce our new channel partners the itx marketplace since 1998 itx has created 5 billion in value by selling more than 225 it businesses in 20 countries ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between 5 million and 30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT. Exchangenet.com/slash marketplace. How to exit that link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.